Hello everyone, and welcome to the Russian Empire History Podcast, the history of all the peoples of the Russian Empire. I'm your host, J.P. Bristow. This is Season 1, The Forest, The Steppe, and the Birth of the Russian Empire, Episode 36, Vladimir the Great, Part 1, The Rise to Power. Thank you to new patron Christopher, and there's been a surge in people listening on YouTube. If that's you, please subscribe to the channel, and maybe one day YouTube will monetize it. I've had a sore throat for the last couple of days, but I didn't want to have another delay in the episode coming out, so I've made this one a bit shorter, and if I come out sounding too hoarse, I'll record it again later. Welcome back to Rus. It's been a while, but we are about to enter its peak period. We left on the death of Sviatoslav, with his son assigned to rule cities of their own. With his unexpected death in a Pecheneg ambush, do you think that the throne will just pass peacefully down to one of them? Of course not. And this is a problem that we're going to see again and again in Rus. So, let's dive back into the tale of bygone years and see what it has to tell us about the brothers. The tale picks up after the death of Sviatoslav, quite laconically. 973, the reign of Yaropolk began. Sveinolt's son, Lut, goes hunting. Yaropolk's brother, Oleg, sees him, hears that it's Sveinolt's son, and kills him for undisclosed reasons. This leads to a feud between the brothers, with Sveinolt egging Yaropolk on. In 976, Yaropolk invades Dereva, which is supposed to be Oleg's territory. Oleg comes out to fight, but loses and flees to Vruchi. Vruchi is surrounded by a moat, and as Oleg and his fleeing soldiers try to cross the bridge into the town, there's a crush of men and horses, and many fall into the moat. Yaropolk arrives and starts looking for Oleg. A local says he saw him pushed off the bridge, and so they conduct a search and find him under a pile of corpses. Yaropolk weeps and blames Sveinold, but then, as the tale puts it, seizes Oleg's property. Vladimir, ruling in Novgorod, hears of Oleg's fate and decides to flee. Yaropolk sends his men to Novgorod and becomes sole ruler of Rus. In 978, Vladimir returns to Novgorod with a band of Varangian allies. He throws Yaropolk's men out of the city and tells them to go and warn him that Vladimir is coming. He sends word to Brogenbold, ruler of Palotsk, asking to marry his daughter. Rogenwald asks his daughter what she thinks, and she says that she will never take the boots off the son of a slave, and she's waiting for Yaropolk instead. Yaropolk is already married to a Greek ex-nun. Vladimir is not satisfied with Rogenwald's reply. He gathers his army of Varangians, recruits Slavs, Chudes, and Krivichians, attacks Polotsk, 
kills Rogenwald and his sons and marries his daughter. Then it is Yaropolk's turn. Vladimir marches on Kiev at the head of a large army. Yaropolk retreats into the city with a Varangian named Blud. Vladimir builds entrenchments and sends a messenger to Blud to tell him, quote, Be my friend. If I kill my brother, I will regard you as my father, and you will have much more honor from me. It was not I who began the fight with my brother. It was he and I have only come out against him because of fear. Blood replied that he would join Vladimir in friendship. Alas, says the chronicler, the evil treachery of men, and digresses into biblical instances of turncoats and their condemnation. Blood is holed up in Kiev with Yaropolk, planning treachery and sending messages to Vladimir, urging him to take the city. Blut himself is looking for ways to kill Yaropolk, but the citizenry keep getting in his way. Thwarted, he starts suggesting to Yaropolk that the people of Kiev are making overtures to Vladimir, and maybe Yaropolk should flee to save himself. Yaropolk believes him and flees to Rodnia on the Ross River. Vladimir takes Kiev and then lays siege to Rodnia. With the defenders starving, Blood again goes to Yaropolk, asking him to look at the size of Vladimir's army and consider making peace. Yaropolk agrees. Blood sends word to Vladimir that he will bring Yaropolk to him. Vladimir and his retinue return to his father's castle with the Great Hall and await Yaropolk. Blood convinces Yaropolk to go to Vladimir and accept whatever terms he is offered. Varyazhko, another Varangian, tries to warn him that Vladimir will kill him and suggests fleeing to the Pechenegs to raise an army instead. Yaropolk ignores him. As Yaropolk enters Vladimir's hall, Varangians waiting behind the door attack him, and Blood closes the doors to prevent his men coming in to defend him. Varyashka flees to the Pechenegs and becomes a thorn in Vladimir's side. Vladimir takes his brother's wife, the beautiful Greek former nun, and, as the tale says, had intercourse with her. Quote, And she became pregnant, and from her was born Sviatopolk. From a sinful root evil fruit is produced, for his mother had been a nun, and Vladimir had intercourse with her without having married her. Sviatopolk was therefore born in adultery, and for this reason his father did not love him. With Kiev taken, the Varangians decide that it's time to get paid. They tell Vladimir the city is theirs because they took it, and demand tribute of two hryvni each. Vladimir tells them to wait until the tribute of Martin Furs is gathered from the people. The Varangians wait around, but Vladimir gives them nothing. So they ask to be released. Vladimir picks the best of them and assigns them to his cities, and lets the rest leave to seek their fortunes in Byzantium. He kindly sends the emperor a message, quote, Varangians are on their way to your country. Don't keep too many in your city, or they will cause harm as they have here. 
scatter them around and don't let a single one come back this way. End quote. With the Varangians gone, the tale declares that Vladimir has become the sole ruler in Kiev. To consolidate, he turns to religion, setting up idols outside his castle. Of Pirun, made of wood with a silver head and a gold moustache, Hors, Dajbog, Striborg, Simargl, and Mokosh. According to the tale, the people brought their sons and daughters to sacrifice them to these devils, desecrating the land of Rus and defiling the hill with blood. Vladimir's uncle, Dobrynya, back in Novgorod, also sets up idols. At this point, the tale takes a long digression to discuss Vladimir's lust, his seductions of married women and violation of young girls, his thousand concubines strategically placed in cities around the country where he might need them on his travels, the various sons and daughters he had, what makes women evil and what makes women good. The author seems a bit unclear as to whether he is disapproving of this behaviour or not, but compares Vladimir to Solomon, who the Bible says had 700 wives, and notes that the Lord had endless wisdom. And that is where we will take the story up to today. So we have something of a typical medieval situation here. It took many kingdoms a few centuries of war, breakups and reunifications to sort out a proper system of succession, and Rus was no exception. This is not the last time we are going to see brothers fighting over who gets to wear the crown. First, we should probably note some clues about the extent of Rus. Sviatoslav has assigned his legitimate sons, Yaropolk and Oleg, to rule Kiev and the Derevlians, respectively, his main power bases. In case you have forgotten, as it's been a while, Gorodice Novgorod felt slighted and demanded a prince of its own in recognition of its status as the original capital of the Rus. So Sviatoslav assigned them Vladimir, his son by what is usually referred to as a housekeeper. These three, who were Sviatoslav's representatives while he campaigned in the south, were still very young. Sviatoslav himself was only around 35 when he died, and so Vladimir was accompanied to Novgorod by his uncle, Dobrynya. Other cities, like Chernihiv or Gnostova, had their own rulers and were most likely still not under the direct control of the ruler of Kiev. Spoiler alert, Vladimir is going to be the one who changes that. A related question was what the hierarchy among the three should be. How was Rus territory assigned among the three? Who got the right to collect tribute from where? And... While looking back from our perspective, we can easily fall into assuming that Kiev is the senior city. Remember that the Rus have only been there for a couple of generations. One of the rulers of Kiev has already tripped off to attempt to settle on the Caspian, and Sviatoslav has just been killed trying to move his capital to the Danube. 
So at his death, as these three brothers begin to face off, the preeminence of Kiev is not an established fact. It was probably inevitable in these circumstances that a conflict would develop between the brothers. As we heard in the tale, the first trigger is an encounter between hunting parties. The tale doesn't specify what in particular sets it all off, but we have Lute, the son of Sveinald, who we've already encountered as one of the leading Rus, and who was probably the man mentoring Yarapolk, the power behind the throne. It is quite possible that Lute and his party were hunting in Oleg's territory, or at least territory that Oleg considered his, and so Oleg kills him. Whatever the trigger was, the result was Yarapolk going to war against his brother. The tale describes his sorrow at finding his brother among the dead, but it's impossible for us to know from the sources whether this is just a trope. Yarapolk could have merely intended to make his brother's subordinate position clear to him. After all, Kiev was a more powerful base than the Derevlians, or he could have set out to conquer and unite the territories. History is full of brothers killing each other for a chance to rule. Certainly, Vladimir seems to assume that Yarapolk is out to conquer, so he leaves Novgorod to seek refuge elsewhere. The death of his brother puts Yarapolk clearly in charge of the Middle Dnieper region, and Vladimir's flight to Scandinavia allows Yarapolk to also place his men in Novgorod. But we can see that his control elsewhere was shaky. A man called Rogvolod, or Ragenvolde in the Scandinavian sources, arrives from the north and sets himself up as the ruler of Palotsk. Another Scandinavian, Turi, establishes Turov on the Pripyat. While these moves may be happening outside of Kiev's control, they also indicate that the Dnieper is becoming more important than the Volga to Scandinavian adventurers. Vladimir holed up somewhere unspecified in the north, maybe in Birka, maybe at one of the Scandinavian capitals, probably found that to his benefit as he recruited a force of Varangians to help him recover his lands. The promise of the riches of the Eastern Road would be a substitute for ready cash when it came to rewarding them. The impression is that Vladimir was welcomed back to Novgorod and dispatched Yarapolk's men without much effort. He then recruits an army from the local Finno-Ugrians and Slavs. He attempts to consolidate his position through a marriage alliance with Rogvalod, but is rejected as the son of a slave by Rogvalod's daughter. It's rather doubtful that this exchange ever took place. It looks like a typical rhetorical flourish inserted by the chronicler. But an alliance with Polotsk and with the Scandinavian contacts of its ruler would have been a sound move for Vladimir as he attempted to build his legitimacy. Vladimir then turns his attention to his brother. It's hundreds of kilometers from Novgorod and Polotsk to Kiev, so it would have been a difficult task for him to take his army, no matter how impressive a force of Varangian Slavs and Finno-Ugrian Chudes he had managed to put together 
all the way down to lay siege to Kiev. This would not just be a logistical problem. While his Varangians might be happy to be in the field throughout the campaigning season, the local recruits from around Novgorod would have been missing their planting and harvesting times while they were away in the south. Instead, Vladimir digs in at Dorogozici and resorts to trickery. He persuades one of Yaropolk's Varangians, Blud, to come over to his side, and Blud works to undermine Yaropolk. He talks him down from action and persuades him to flee to another town instead. As Yaropolk had not prepared this town for a siege, he soon gets into trouble with his food and supplies. At this point, he rejects the advice of another one of his advisors to go and recruit Pechenegs against Vladimir, and instead decides he's going to trust his brother and negotiate with him. His trust turns out to be misplaced as Vladimir's Varangians cut him off from his men and stab him to death. Varyazhko flees to the Pechenegs, where he does indeed recruit a force of warriors and attack the Rus numerous times. This kind of tale is quite common in Scandinavian literature. Despite the emphasis on martial honour, beating an enemy by trickery is seen as evidence of cunning and wisdom and elevates the status of the trickster, even in a case like this where the person on the receiving end is a brother. The tale has no criticism for Vladimir murdering his brother, and unlike Yaropolk on the death of Oleg, Vladimir does not mourn his brother. Indeed, Vladimir moves on from deceiving his brother to deceiving the Varangians, who had just helped him take the throne. When they, quite reasonably, ask him for the payment that he had certainly promised them when he recruited them, he fobs them off with a request to wait until the taxes are gathered, and then persuades most of them to go and seek their fortune in Byzantium instead. Franklin and Shepard see this as a sign of the weakness of Vladimir's position in Kiev. The population would have been aware that Yaropolk was killed while seeking peace, and no one ever wants to pay taxes to foreign subjugators. Therefore, Vladimir might simply not have been in a position to extract the funds necessary to pay the Varangians. The message he sends to Byzantium, to not keep the Varangians in their city or they will do them ill as they had in Kiev, may be a ruse to have the Byzantines deal with the Varangians and stop them coming back to join him, or it may be a legitimate message indicating that Vladimir had had trouble maintaining discipline among his forces, who had indeed caused trouble among the local population. Serhi Plokhi goes as far as to call this the end of the Viking Age in Rus. He sees Vladimir's dispersal of his Varangians as the end of the Comitatus or princely retinue in Rus. From this point, he believes, Rus ceased to be a term for the ruling elite and began to become synonymous with all the people of Rus. It may well be true that the chroniclers in Kiev, Constantinople and elsewhere gradually start referring to all the people of Rus as Rus, but I don't think I can quite agree with the first part of that. Rus will still be a part of the Viking world for a while yet, with men like Olaf Tryggvason, soon to be king of Norway, living at Vladimir's court, and Harald Hardrada still to come. 
The Norse sagas are full of adventures in Rus for decades after Vladimir takes power. But Vladimir is now in control of Kyiv, without the Varangian army that helped him gain power. Although, as the tale says, he has retained the best of the Varangians in his service, it is most likely that he is now reliant on a local force brought over to his side by Blood. This brought its own risk of established persons of influence that would need something from Vladimir to ensure their loyalty. Vladimir himself did not have a local power base in Kiev. His home had been Novgorod. And although the kings of Rus had not settled down into anything approaching monogamy, he was not a son from an official marriage, which also meant weaker ties to the leading figures of the city. He had married Rognida rather than a local woman, so that path to consolidating his position was also closed. Vladimir needed a way to entrench his rule, and he turned to religion. The group of idols that he set up represented the diversity of his people. Perun, the god of lightning, power, law, and other things, was worshipped by the Balts and Slavs, and had been easily adopted by the Rus, due to his similarity to the Norse god Thor. Of the other five gods mentioned in the tale, Dajbog was a god of the sun and harvests, followed by the south and east Slavs. Stribog has a Slavic name, but is less understood. And the remaining gods were not Slavic and came from sources such as the Iranic peoples still living around the middle Dnieper. The tale doesn't specify which god Dobrynya set up in Novgorod, but it was most likely Pirun who had already been worshipped for over a century at a shrine outside the town in a place that's still known as Pirin. What we can tell from the tale is that this kind of mandatory public religion was something new for Rus. We don't know how it was received by the ordinary people. The tale treats it very negatively, but that is the perspective we would expect from the monks writing it. This is one of those things that I wish we knew more about. We don't even really understand the roles and attributes of the gods that were chosen, and have only the loosest ideas about who they were taken from. This attempt to build an official religion was actually a very unusual and innovative move. We've already encountered a couple of cases with pagan peoples adopting new official religions in order to align themselves with superior powers or gain access to cultural advantages. Rus had already been involved in this kind of exchange itself. Olga had ruled as a Christian, although Sviatoslav had rejected the religion. There had been missions from Germany and Byzantium, and Rus had been in communication with Rome. At the very beginning of his reign, Yaropolk had sent a diplomatic mission to Holy Roman Emperor Otto I, as recorded by the Emperor's Court Chronicle. There, the mission met with fellow representatives from Bulgaria, Poland, Byzantium, Hungary and Denmark. The reasons for this gathering are not known, but some scholars argue that they were discussing the creation of a bishopric in Prague and how far its authority would extend. 
Given that Yaropolk's father had just fought a war with the Byzantines and had been killed due to their treachery, he may also just generally have had an interest in getting closer to the Germans. A papal embassy turned up in Rus in 979 to discuss the Christians of Rus. Again, we have little information about the purpose of this mission, but it serves as further confirmation that there was already a Christian community in Rus and that it was in contact with and known to the wider church. The competing power centres of the Germans, Rome and Byzantium, were sending out missions to convert peoples and bring them into their orbits, and the Pope seems to have been testing the waters in Rus. We have no information on Yaropolk's thoughts about the matter, and in any case, Vladimir arrived back with his army of Varangians the following year. So, Vladimir's attempt to syncretize a new Rus religion that brought together a pantheon of deities from the various people he ruled was an unusual and creative approach to the idea of uniting a nation through religion, and one that was also an assertion of independence from neighboring powers. Christianity was not Vladimir's first choice. The attempt was to last less than a decade and end in the Christianization of Rus. Why did it fail? The chroniclers had no interest in discussing Vladimir's pagan digressions and other sources are extremely limited. The tale gives the impression that the new religion was not widely welcomed, to the extent we can take it at face value, but mainly the new religion lacked the whole apparatus of the church. It did not have bishops to be an arm of state power, or priests to present the state ideology to the people. That is, it did not have the unifying and centralizing power essential to a state religion, and therefore it could not serve Vladimir's needs. Besides his religious moves, the early years of Vladimir's reign were characterized by territorial consolidation and particularly a shift to a more Western orientation. Before Vladimir, the Buch, which today forms part of the borders between Poland and Belarus and Poland and Ukraine, had marked the westernmost extent of Rus. But in 981, Vladimir crossed over the river and took Przemysl, Chervin and some other towns from the Lyaks. These towns linked Rus into the Vistula and then on to Krakow, Prague and the rest of Central Europe. And that meant that more of the trade route from Rus to the Germans was under Rus control. This was doubly important because the eastern trade that had been the stimulus for the birth of Rus was collapsing. The destruction of Kazaria was knocking down dominoes that were cutting off the stable trade routes to the east and forcing the Rus to look westwards. What silver dirhams were still arriving from the Caliphate were now substantially debased. This would particularly affect the more eastern-oriented towns. Novgorod and Gnozdova were still depositing silver hordes and were focused on the Volga trade route. Some trading settlements detached from the international routes altogether and drifted into being minor agricultural towns. And this process was also going to make Vladimir's alliances and international relations with the West much more important. So, 
Vladimir has taken the throne and made himself sole ruler in Kiev. In contrast to his predecessors, for whom their Rus cities had been a base for adventures further afield, happily moving from Gorodishi to Kiev and from Kiev to Bulgaria if they had got away with it, Vladimir will aim to build his kingdom around Kiev. He will fight wars to acquire and consolidate territory, carry out enormous building works, move entire populations around, and use religion to help him centralize power and build international relations. As Serhii Porky describes Vladimir and his son Yaroslav, quote, Instead of conquering Constantinople on the Bosphorus, as their predecessors had attempted to do, they decided to reproduce it on the Dnieper. Join me next episode as we see Vladimir start to do that and get to one of the great turning points in the history of Rus and its successor states, Christianization. Thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>